his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Tuesday, January 16th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dane. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we'll be joined by a very special guest live in studio. Retired Navy Captain Ralph Parrott will be in studio to talk to us about the latest regarding the Mare Island Naval Cemetery. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, the basic breakdown of the Mare Island issue is that this was a former naval installation in California the very first on the West Coast. It was shut down and taken over by the state government quite a long time ago, and they didn't really do a lot with it, specifically with the cemetery, which is the final resting place of a few Medal of Honor recipients. Well, it's looking a bit better now, thanks to the work of Ralph and some other good citizens, and we'll get an update on what's going on with the Mare Island Cemetery and the rest of that facility today. But first, we welcome super producer Jake Hughes into the studio after a nice long holiday weekend. Jake, did you enjoy the uh, three-day weekend? I did very much. And it's, you know, it's one of those weekends that really make me realize kind of how sad I am. And that I, I don't think I got, I don't think I changed out of my sweatpants the entire <laughs> weekend. I just, I sat there, my dog was whining because she was so bored, but I was like, yeah. video games, <laughs> sitting down playing video. You know, I dream sometimes of the days where I could sit in my sweatpants. Now I still do that. Don't change out of sweatpants all weekend, but sit there and just veg out and do nothing but watch TV and play video games. But you know, the, the whole family, five year old. Yeah, five-year-old doesn't allow that, but this weekend, so his birthday was on Friday, as we said last week, so we had uh, his uh, one of his grandfathers and one of his grandmothers down, had a nice birthday cake for him, he got a few presents and everything. We're not doing his party around his birthday, because we're like two weeks away from Christmas, so we spread it out a little bit, so it's going to be in February that we're doing his birthday party, so did that on Friday and Saturday, and then Sunday... As we've been talking about for a while, and has been it rescheduled. finally happened. Rescheduled a few times. Finally made my way out to Warrior's Rest. That's the uh, uh, the property of retired SEAL Senior Chief Don Shipley and his wife Diane in the eastern shore of Maryland. Went out there with Rob Jones, of course, who's been a guest on the show several times. RobJonesJourney.com. If you're not familiar with it, go check it out. This is a Marine who lost both of his legs, double above the knee amputee. Rode his bike across the country from Maine to San Diego and then topped that, which might seem hard to top, by running 31 marathons in 31 days in 31 cities on two prosthetic legs. The The craziest thing about that story, the 31 marathons, he ran the first one in the place where he won a Paralympics medal, London, England. So he flies wow. over to London, runs a marathon in London, flies back, and then runs a marathon in, I can't remember if it was Baltimore or Philadelphia where he started off, then worked his way across the country. And, and, that's, and that's hardcore to run a marathon, transatlantic flight. Yeah. 
And then the next day, run another run marathon. another marathon, and then twenty nine more after that. Of course. Yeah. So Rob's a, Rob's a different animal, man. He is he is a true American uh, hero uh, and uh, a true hardcore human being. Just went out there and did all that stuff. So he was out there along with his buddy Ben Kiernan, who was from his uh, same unit, both Marine Corps combat engineers. Uh, ben was injured by an IED as well. The two of them came out, so we got out there on Sunday along with uh, our cameraman Phil. Bird Dog Briggs. <laughs> I might explain where the new nickname came from, but oh, it's going to stick. He's not going to be called Phil by anybody in here anymore once they hear this. No, no. You've already heard the story and you were laughing before yeah. we came on air today. So uh, Phil was out there shooting some video. So we're going to have a, a story up on this. We're going to get a video put together of the, uh, we did some interviews with them and we got some great footage. Uh, it's going to be some really, really good stuff because what they're doing out there at Warriors Rest is it's fantastic. And, you know, you go out there on Sunday. I, I got out there. I was the first one to arrive. And then uh, Rob and Ben arrived shortly after me. And then Phil quite a ways after us because he was uh, running behind a little bit. They have a full, beautiful dinner, sit you down in their home, just talk to you, get to know you a little bit. Uh, and then we went over. They have this barn that they converted. And the upstairs of the barn is basically where Diane lets Don keep all the crap she doesn't want in her house, yeah. essentially, <laughs> is how he was explaining it. Which includes, uh, you know, stuffed animals, uh, not like teddy bears, but like stuffed. Uh, there's like a Taxidermy bobcat up animals. there. And yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of uh, his SEAL team memorabilia and photos and things like that. Uh, a really impressive place. And it's got like four bedrooms. So each of us had our own bedroom. There are a couple bathrooms. Get in there. Have a good night. You know, Don came over and hung out with us. Said, hey, in the morning. Going to be over here about six thirty. You guys need to be ready to go. We'll have a cup of coffee. We'll get out there. We'll set the uh, we'll set the the decoys and we'll get in the blinds and we'll have a great day. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. We got up early. He came over, had a cup of coffee, went out there before the sun rose, got set up, and then as the sun rose, it's hunting time. And we uh, we had a fantastic time out there. Everybody had a great time, even though it was brutally cold. It was about twenty degrees when we got out there, and I don't think it got much above thirty throughout the day. Although by the end of it, you started to warm up. But my toes, even with my uh, United States Army issued extreme cold weather boots, my toes were still a little numb. <laughs> it's like you know I should have put some of these hand warmers in there. But other than the cold, uh, let's see, we got seven geese. Unfortunately, uh, one of them was hit and then kind of glided into the neighbor's yard, so the neighbor <laughs> had to pick that one up. And that was one of the ones that I got. So I was like, of course, of course. And then another one I got, it went off into the bushes and then somehow came out like 100 yards to the left of where it was. Really, really odd time. And as I mentioned, uh, Phil uh, Bird Dog was out there shooting video for us and everything. Um, so the nickname comes from oh Lord Phil was uh, sent out to retrieve a goose because Don has a young dog that he's training to be a retriever. And the dog did a great job of getting out to the geese, but then kind of the, bringing them back in. He's still, he got a couple of them back in, a couple of them he didn't. And you don't have time as there's more geese coming. And you want to run out there, grab it, get it back in, get back in the blind. So Phil was sent out to retrieve a goose. And well, I guess he assumed it was going to be uh, deceased when he got to it. <laughs> It was not. So that freaked him out. He's dancing around trying to figure out how to grab it. 
Don Shipley's yelling at him. It's not a pit bull or a rattlesnake. Just grab the darn thing. And he just couldn't do what he wants. He's trying to like step on it to get it. And oh God, it was uh, very humorous. And hey, the jokes. hey them, them ducks got some sharp teeth, you know. Well, that, that's what he was saying when he came back in. You know, he was being as as a bird dog does. He was uh, have he has a good sense of humor about everything. Came back in. He was like, I don't know if these things have teeth or if they're venomous or anything. We're like, <laughs> yes, yes, Phil, the venomous toothed Canadian goose. And he's, he's scared it was going to bite him. And then he's telling us some story about how a turkey went after him years ago. So he's going to think about birds oh, now. He's got PTSD from oh, the turkey attack. He's got post-turkey stress disorder. That's what it is. Now it's PGSD, post-goose stress disorder. So he got a... Uh, he got he got him back in there eventually, but we got we got seven geese. Had a great time sitting out there. And then when we're done, you know, it's not just like all right, we're done hunting, go home. Come in. Diane Shipley is an amazing cook. She has chili and soup and uh, and grilled cheese and all sorts of stuff waiting for us and juice and uh, just a real nice spread when we got back. And on top of that, so Rob Jones gets in there, and as I said, Rob's a different animal. Well, for the month of January, Rob is eating only meat. He's on an all-meat diet. Everything she had uh, prepared that, that she was going to do for our, our get-back lunch had meat but other stuff in it. Like there was a venison chili with a deer that they took out a while back. All this other great stuff. Well, she she had learned the night before that Rob was doing an all-meat diet. She cooked him like three big like porterhouse steaks. <laughs> and he sat down. He was eating all of them. That, man, that, that gentleman, that Marine can put away some beef. He was just chowing down on them. And then after that, we went and visited the uh, the picker. We brought our geese down to the guy who actually takes the feathers out of them. Because you can do that on your own, but it is a time-consuming process. And there's a guy who will do it for you for a few bucks. You go down there and do that. So we brought him to him. Uh, very cool guy down there by the name of Emmett. Got to meet him, see how he does it. He's got this cool machine with rubber fingers on it that basically rips the feathers out but doesn't rip the skin. Uh, and then after that, we went and visited an old state senator from Maryland who uh, has his property out there and had a great time talking to him. Really a fantastic trip. And ours was shorter than what they like to do. They like to have people out there for three or four days at a time, basically. Get them out there for the night just to relax, go hunting for a couple of days, and then another relaxing day, and then the getaway and everything. So we condensed it a little bit for this time, but uh, we've been invited back out. And we have some ideas for people who we might bring out there with us. Next time, I want to go. Hey, I'll be your cameraman. There you go. We'll have we'll have Jake the cameraman go back out there. So the uh, and if you get sent out to get a goose, get the goose. Don't, I got it. Don't dance. With I got it, you. For goodness sake, bird. Dog. Well, now I'm going to. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. I think it's Don tradition might, at this point. I think Don's head might explode if another person did that. <laughs> and he was like, "Come on, you're one of my Navy guys. What are you doing? Embarrassing me out here?" But it was uh, it was really a fantastic time. And what they're doing out there at Warriors Rest, they don't charge anybody. They have people come out and hunt and fish and hang out at their beautiful property. It's like 80 acres that they have. It's a big property with a lot of wildlife around there. On my way out yesterday, I come across, I don't know, 25, 30 turkeys just standing in the road right after I left their driveway. I, just an amazing hunting spot out there, an amazing game spot, fishing and all that. They've got boats and everything. They don't charge a dime for it. In fact, they reimburse people for coming out for the hunting licenses that they get and things like that. Uh, with They do this with wounded warriors. They do it with uh, terminally ill children and their families. They are just uh, really the nicest giving people that you could imagine and doing 
truly great stuff out there. And I'm so happy we got to go out. And this story and video that we're going to put together this week is going to really help shine a light on everything that they're doing because it's not ever going to be the Wounded Warrior Project. It's never going to be like a national program. This is just a husband and wife, uh, military families. I mean, Don's father was a fighter pilot. Diane was a sailor herself. Their son is a United States Navy SEAL now. Um, They are very, very big into helping out whoever they can in the military and veteran community, specifically the Wounded Warriors. So, you know, we've got some ideas. I'll tell you this, our old friend Shane Crutchton, who's fighting this Saturday on national TV, by the way, on what is the Spike Network for like two more days. I think on the 18th, it becomes the Paramount Network. So uh, if you're familiar with Spike, it'll be there. On Saturday, he's fighting at the Bellator event on the main card on national TV against big up-and-comer Aaron Pico, who uh, they, you know, was just a couple months ago was listed as like the can't miss MMA prospect. And they got knocked out like 30 seconds into his first fight. <laughs> Didn't get knocked out. He got choked out, but then came back and won another fight by knockout in 30 seconds. So uh, Shane is, uh, is a tough, tough customer for Pico. And uh, I think Shane might take it out, but Shane saw a picture that I posted of us, uh, I think out in the blinds out there, or maybe the night before where we were uh, relaxing and having a good time. And he was like, Hey, this fight and cutting weight is the only thing that kept me from being out there. I want to be in on the next one. So we may <laughs> see if we can get, you know, purple art recipient slash MMA fighter Shane Crutchton out there. Yeah, that would be a uh, that would be a good one. But really great, great stuff that they're doing out there and such good, fun people just having a good time out there. You know, I think I think some people think of, uh, you know, the special operators is just mission oriented and that's it. And that's they're hyper focused. Of course, they have that ability to a level that most people don't. But they're also, you know, you got to remember, these are human beings who who care and love and, and like having a good time. And man, we had all those things out there this weekend. There was a lot of uh, a lot of camaraderie going around. And uh, I think Rob and Ben had a great time out there as well, uh, even though, man, it was cold. <laughs> it was cold. See, my wife was making fun of me because I bought these hunting mittens because we were supposed to go out two weeks before where it was the coldest weekend ever. Right. I got these mittens that you flip up the mitten part and it becomes a glove, which is better for handling a firearm than mittens, of course. That would be a bit of a problem. Um, and it also has a little pocket in the mitten part for hand warmers. Oh, thank goodness for those things. Yeah. I don't care that my wife was making fun of me. I was toasty in the hand department. Toes, not so much. I mean, I'm not losing a toe or anything like that. I'm not complaining too much. But even though it was so cold, it was a great time and uh, getting some meat out of it. I'm glad you had a good time, man. Can't beat it. Now, let's take a look at some of the things taking place around the military and veteran world. Here's a Navy vet, one of my fellow Navy vets, Jake. He's suing a VA hospital in South Carolina. Do you want to know why he's suing them? Do tell. He says that he was suffering from gallbladder and pancreas disease, went into the emergency room with severe abdominal pain in May of 2015, His urine sample was switched with that of another patient, apparently, and the hospital discharged him because he tested positive for cocaine. It wasn't his urine sample. That's, of course, the problem. This guy was not a, uh, this guy was apparently not an addict. This is all according to his lawsuit. Um, They say that uh, in December, uh, they filed the lawsuit and it says Walker's urine sample was switched with that of another patient. Says that Dorm, uh, which is the hospital, discharged Walker, offered him pamphlets about treatment of substance abuse. The 47 year old was treated several days later at Lexington Medical Center Hospital for the actual issue 
that he had. Um, so there is no comment coming out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in South Carolina. That's who's going to defend the Veterans Hospital down there. But not cool, man. Yeah, I mean, it's... how does something like that happen? If his lawsuit, what it alleges, is correct, that they switched his urinalysis sample, his urine sample with somebody else's, and then you deny this guy covered, he could have died. Yeah, that's flagrant and blatant uh what's what i'm looking for a mishandling of a patient yeah I, 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 there's a better word for it but it's not popping up in my head now we haven't heard their response they had no comment on this so they may say hey we didn't switch any urine sample this guy did test positive for cocaine but don't they still have to check and make sure that that's what's causing the issue i mean i, I suppose cocaine could cause severe abdominal pains and stuff i don't know i've never done cocaine so uh, if you've never done it you've certainly never overdosed on it or had any chronic illnesses associated with it, that kind of thing but gallbladder and pancreas disease i yes certainly i suppose he could have been feasibly using cocaine and had those issues but uh, this whole story that's that's not a good one and that yeah, one is I, uh i think haven't we written before oh, we reported before that the va is going to stop denying coverage if they Test if you test positive for marijuana. So yeah. does that mean they will? Uh, this mean they deny coverage if you test positive for other drugs? I don't know. We'll have to find out about that. Yeah, because we'll that's very interesting. Is that? I mean, like you said, they just turned him away instantly because he popped hot for something. Yeah, which is uh, it, it's not good. Thankfully, he was treated uh, later at a, another hospital. Um, we don't have the full story, and again, that's part of the problem with the way that the VA does things. Being a trained public affairs professional myself, I, I don't know why, but they seem to go about just about responding to just about everything in a way that I would not in my professional expertise opinion. And I guess some people would consider me a subject matter expert on that. There are certainly people who are much more uh, experienced and have a lot more um, knowledge when it comes to public affairs and public relations. And you would assume the people running that at the VA hospitals are certainly more experienced than me, but Common sense sometimes needs to come into it. And a lot of them come from the military community, the public affairs professionals there. And the military does things in a somewhat similar way, you know, not saying anything until they absolutely have to, instead of what most civilian companies, uh, non-governmental organizations do. And that's try to get out ahead of the story. Have your plan of attack for how you're going to respond to this, which is either, hey, we messed up and, uh, you know, we're going to deal with this or no, we did not mess up. He, Yes, he had these medical issues, but he also tested positive for this. And our guidance, our federal guidance, if it says that he's not allowed to receive treatment because of that, you know, that, that, that could be a defense when it comes to the lawsuit, but not making any comment on it. It's, it's dumb because it allows anyone like we're doing right now to come up with our own possibility of what might've happened. Exactly. And it, that's, I can't get over the fact that it's terrible guidance. If that's true, like, it's I don't care if you're a heroin addict if you have a serious disease and you deserve treatment from the VA you should get it yeah yeah I mean it's uh it, you there there's certainly the argument that the VA's job is not to um treat just people having issues because of their drug use their illegal drug use i i can understand that aspect saying like listen we don't want to spend all this money to get a junkie uh out of the get a junkie feeling better so they can go out and do more heroin when we could be spending that money on people who have uh you know service connected issues and things like that i can understand that outlook but it's uh it's just not a good look when something like this happens and then again with the not saying anything about it no comment 
Why not? Why don't you tell us what happened? Why don't you tell us what your perspective on it is? Do you not know yet? Because if you don't know yet, that tells me that there's a little uh, a little break there because this happened over a month ago, and I'm sure this isn't the first they've heard about the lawsuit. Yeah. You know? Whenever I gave public affairs classes to soldiers, one of the first things I told them was never say no comment because no comment means I have something to hide. Yeah. Tell them, you know, we are looking into the, I mean, at the bare exactly. minimum, we're looking into the issue further. But the AP contacted the VA, uh, you know, the, or sorry, the state's attorney office down there. No stop, no, no comment from them down in Columbia, South Carolina. So no comment is not good. You know, you can direct them. If you're not the right person for them to talk to, you direct them to who it is. This is the state's attorney's office, so it's not the VA directly, but the VA apparently hasn't said much on it or anything on it, too, except, hey, talk to our attorneys, and then the attorney doesn't say anything. Uh, it just doesn't seem like a, a smart tack to take when it comes to um, how you deal with a negative story like this, which yeah. right now the only narrative out there is the negative one. It just... it. <sighs> To me, either way, it's a black eye for the VA because either they messed up or they refused treatment based on a separate issue other than what they – because if – again, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. I've never done cocaine. Maybe I'll ask my brother someday. But (laughs) yeah, he has issues. Anyway, uh, that – but I have never heard about that kind of pancreas and – and what was it else? Pancreas and gallbladder. gallbladder. No, I think the pancreas can have problems because of drug use and alcohol use. But I, this this sounds like if he went to another hospital and he was treated, and he was, he was treated at, uh, where did it say? He was treated at uh, Lexington, uh, some other hospital down there. Uh, yeah, Lexington Medical Care Hus- Medical Center Hospital. If they treated him and they didn't, he didn't test positive for cocaine there, and they were like, yeah, no, he's got these diseases, uh, that would seem to be a pretty clear case of they messed up. But we'll have to wait and see, and we'll have to wait and see if the VA or the state's attorney's office has any comment on it. Yeah, we always talk about, like, we talk about the good the VA does. We also talk about the bad the VA does. Yeah. But <laughs> we, we have often said that the problem with the VA is the bureaucracy, that once you get to the care, the care is actually very good. This, though cast some doubt yeah it does now here's something that's coming out from the va and this is uh, i think a good that comes out of uh, what a lot of people perceive as a bad military times interviewed secretary shulkin of course secretary of the department of veterans affairs and they are making a move to become the first hospital system in the country to discuss details on opioid use and prescriptions so they're going to release the prescription rates for all facilities because of course We've all heard about this, the combat cocktail and the opioids out there like, hey, you know, this is what we're doing, basically giving people synthetic heroin is what opioids are. Essentially, they come from opium from the poppy, same place that heroin comes from. Uh, And it's led to a lot of issues. And it's clearly an issue. I mean, politicians are talking about it. Doctors are talking about it. But uh, here's what the the Military Times says: that since 2012, when VA instituted instituted huh, instituted a new instituted. Opioid, opioid safety initiative to decrease the amount of medication dispensed, prescriptions have dropped more than 41 percent system wide. Officials say 99 percent of facilities have decreased decreased their prescribing rates. We're still going to see, though. Now we're going to have the data uh, actually available at the VA's website, and it's up there now. So that's on the Military Times story. And I'm looking at this. Let's see, like, uh, well, we're in Houston, right? That's yeah. where you're from originally. Let's see what they've got down there. It looks like there's one down in Houston. Uh, so in 2012, 12% of patients received um, opioids from the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center in Houston. 
2017, 6%. So that's actually a 54% drop because it's probably like 12.4%, 6% or something like that. So that's a pretty good drop. Now, looking up at the, the VA hospital that I went to uh, when I first got out, West Haven VA Medical Center, 2012, they had 9% uh, of patients were prescribed opioids, 7% in 2017. So a drop, not as significant a drop as down in Houston. And then looking at another one that I'm familiar with, uh, Northport VA Medical Center in New York, Prescribing rate in 2012, 7%, uh, 2017, 5%. So, you know, we've got uh, a lot of good news coming out of the VA, and it's great when they do something like this that actually is able to put it into numbers. But, you know, there's, as we said, there's also things like this uh, lawsuit in South Carolina that is not particularly good. Um, right, but I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah. It's just, to me, the problem that happened with the guy in the urine sample and the cocaine and stuff that doesn't look systemic. Stuff no. like that is the rarity. Yeah, where, it's, it's whereas, an outlier. That's exactly, why it makes exactly. News, whereas yeah. the releasing the data for opioids, that is like like the I believe the secretary said that is a first step by the VA that hopefully other hospitals will follow. Yeah, well, and when you look at this, it's an interactive map for this uh, the VA opioid prescription data. The two places that remain twenty uh, percent and above, it looks like. Um, Roseburg VA Medical Center in Oregon. It looks like it's down near Portland, I believe. Uh, prescribing rate in 2012, 28%. Prescribing rate in 2017, 20%. So that's, uh, you know, an increase or a decrease of 30%, but still one out of every five patients is receiving those. And then also in the Pacific Northwest, you have the Mann Grandstaff VA Medical Center in Spokane, Washington, 26% in 2012. 18% now, again, down 30%. So it's dropping everywhere, it looks like. But, uh, you know, there's some places, as we're seeing there, where it is just, it's still very high. The lowest places, let's see if we have a low here. Uh, of the ones that are below 6.4%, or were below 6.4% in 2017, you've got like Lewis Stokes, Cleveland VA, and a lot of interesting stuff there that we are going to have to take a look at. But right now, we're going to have to get to a little break, and we will be back with more of The Morning Briefing coming your way right after this. Eric Dame and Jake Hughes in studio. Ralph Parrott going to join us in studio in just a little bit to talk about the Mare Island Naval Cemetery. Morning Briefing, back after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing. It's Tuesday, January 16th, 2018. Coming out of the long weekend and hope you're waking up having a good day so far. And thank you so much for waking up with us or whenever you're listening to this. Because did you know each and every edition of The Morning Briefing is available for download from ConnectingVets.com just a few hours after it airs? Yeah, it's put together in podcast form by our own Jake Hughes. After we get off the show, he puts them together. He puts them up on the website. And you can download them and check them out and listen to all the good stuff if you already listened and want to hear it again or if you uh, miss an episode you can download it right there and look through previous episodes to find the interviews that might interest you interviews with people like oh i don't know how about tim kennedy 
UFC superstar Green Beret, host of Hunting Hitler on the History Channel. Interview with him on there. We've got interviews with uh, great veterans doing great things. A recent one that we had just last week with the Wounded Paw Project. Ernesto Hernandez came in to talk to us about that. And uh, what he's doing is turning rescue dogs into service dogs, which can cost as little as one-fifth as much as that typical purebred service dog. I mean, Jake, you're a dog person. When you think of a service dog, what do you see? If you, if I say close your eyes and picture a service dog, what do you see? I see like a golden retriever or similar sized dog wearing a cute little vest that's got an army patch on it. And mm. it's the kind of dog that you want to go over and pet, but you can't because it's doing its job. And it's like, yeah, it's working. I pictured the German shepherd standing at attention, just ready to leap into action and help somebody and pull him out. Well, Ernesto told us the story of his dog, Daisy, who was a rescue, essentially helping him out of bed without even being trained for it realizing that he was struggling and pu- giving his uh her pull toy you know you have the toys that you play with your dog and you pull on one side they pull on the other trying to give it to him and he would throw it away and she'd bring it back and he thought she just wanted to play until he realized what she was trying to do he grabbed the pull toy she grabbed the other side she pulled just enough to help him get out of bed uh, ernesto is a purple heart recipient who uh, was injured on the field of battle um it, it changed his life for the better and now he's trying to help do the same for other veterans while saving the lives of service dogs and saving on that price tag a little bit than these dogs that are you know bred for it essentially from birth and uh, and raised well bred before birth i suppose but <laughs> bred for it and then raised and trained constantly to do that so that and so much more available at connectingvets.com for the audio stuff click on the podcast link and you'll find so many great podcasts on there you'll also find uh, of course us doing our morning briefing shenanigans every day and of course also on the site you've just got a lot of really good articles and interviews there's one about free pub or sorry free one about public transportation discounts for veterans that are out there that's pretty awesome same day care at the va for urgent mental health care a government shutdown what does that mean for the military and veterans 2008 flu season expected to be horrible my family's got a little bit of that going on like last week we don't know if it was the flu or not it seemed to be like a a short-lived thing but my son woke up throwing up in the middle of the night and then two days later uh, when i got home on friday it was weird. My wife was fine when I got home at, uh, I think it was about two o'clock or something like that. Go and pick up my son, bring him home and all that stuff. And then by four o'clock, she was thrown up all over the place, but then seemed to be doing a lot better by Saturday. So still a little bit of it hanging around, but the flu season this year, everything I've heard about it is that it's bad. And I'm usually somebody who gets the flu at least every, co- I haven't had it in a while. Knock on for Micah or whatever this is. Uh, I haven't had it for a while. I'm hoping that I don't get it this year. Yeah, my uh, my mom's a nurse. She said that the problem is that this year, this past flu shot has only proven to be about 10% effective. Yeah. Because you, you know, you know, and I'm assuming that most people know that what they do is for flu shots, they they look at data and they make a their best estimate as to what types of flu are gonna be prevalent this year yep. and mix those into a cocktail. That's your flu shot. So I guess this year they guessed wrong. Yeah. And they're, they're not as effective as they usually are. And they're not saying that you shouldn't get a flu shot. Well, the flu strain mutates and everything like that. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you hear people say like, "Yeah, I got the flu shot for the first time, and this is the year that I got the flu." 
those two things that that's not necessarily causation it's correlation you have the two things there but doesn't mean that that's why you got the flu the flu shot is a good idea particularly for those who have uh, reduced immune systems whether it's the elderly children those who have illnesses like cancer hiv things like that uh, it's really important for them to get it uh, i actually haven't gotten mine this year I used to have, you know, when you were in the military, you had to get it every yeah. year. You remember people like flu shots, everybody go down there. And then uh, by the end, I remember the last flu shot that I got, they did the, did you ever have the nasal gel thing? Yeah, the, oh, the, the, the runny that. egg thing. Just yeah. jab me with a needle. I don't want you sticking this thing up my nose and squirting gel in my nose. It was so gross. No kidding. When I was, when I went to get my, uh, I had uh PRK surgery done on my eyes okay. to correct them. When I was initially going in there, the, I they denied me. I had to wait two months because I had gotten the nasal mist flu shot huh. because it's an active virus. <laughs> so the, it put you at risk for infection. So I had to wait. I Yeah, I did not like that. I only did it once and said, like, I'm never doing this again. And then, of course, I got out of the Navy, so I never had to do it again. Now <laughs> I just get the shot. Just stick me with the little needle, and I'll be fine, because that was gross. Although not as bad as the boot camp shot, the, uh, the one that they give you. I don't know what it was. We called it the peanut butter shot. They give it to you right in the old took us there, right in the old yep. butt cheek. And it felt like they had put a golf ball under your skin and it hurt to sit down for a couple of days and all that stuff. You see a bunch of people just rubbing their backsides to try and smooth it out. That shot, I still don't know what it was that they put inside of us. Yeah, but that, that was, was that was always the fun part when oh. I was a drill sergeant looking over the soldiers that initially came in before they went to basic, getting all the medical stuff done. The uh, the medical room had uh, foam floors yeah. because every t- every cycle you would see someone just oh, and fall down <laughs> before just they even got down. the shot. Just boom. I, uh, as a kid, was not a fan of needles. Like, you know, when you're a kid and oh. they draw blood, they prick your finger and take yeah. the blood out that way. They literally had to chase me around the doctor's office once or twice. They had, I remember one time, they had to get two orderlies, two big burly orderlies <laughs> to come in and sit on me so I would let them get to my hand because, oh no, no, they wanted to draw blood from my arm. They couldn't. They had to take it from one of the veins on my hand because I wouldn't let them get to it. Yeah. I'm still not like a huge fan. Now, I do have tattoos and that's one thing where people are. Uh, we're scared of needles if you got tattoos. I'm not scared of them. When I get blood drawn, I don't look at it. That's the key. Like I, I don't mind seeing uh, somebody else's blood. I don't mind seeing an animal's blood. I mean, I, I don't enjoy seeing it, but it doesn't bother my own blood. And eh, that's mine, dude. What are you doing taking that out? Yes. So I don't like looking at that. See me, I have to look. I can't help it. It's, it, it, no, it's no. I know I shouldn't, but uh. it's, it's like eh, eh, no, I gotta look. I gotta see. No, I never want to see that ever, ever, ever. And I don't look at the needles when they're doing it to me. I'll tell you this. The first tattoo that I got, they told me before I went in. And if you're out there thinking about getting a tattoo, listen to me and take this advice. The guy who took me down to a place, uh, it was a place, I don't even know if it's still there, but it's pretty close to where I live now, actually. It was while I was at, uh, at Fort Meade for my A school. There was a place called Artistic Inc. And a buddy of mine knew a guy who worked there. He's like, yeah, come on, we'll go down there. We'll get a discount. You get your first one. I was like, all right, cool. Go down there. He's like, hey, did you eat anything this afternoon? Like, did you have dinner or anything? Or, you know, have have something to eat. Have like a burger and a Coke or whatever. Get your blood sugar up. You want to do that? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm good. I'm good. I hadn't eaten anything like all day. (laughs) They start doing the tattoo about 20 minutes into it, I blacked out, just just unconscious. And apparently it happens a lot, particularly with people's first time. Your body's not used to it. It just kind of shuts down. If you're thinking about going to get a tattoo, one, 
do it at a place that's legitimate. Do it at a place where they open up that needle in front of you, where it's not one that they may have been using on, you know, Johnny next door when he came over to get. No, 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 no. Use a fresh needle and have have like a soda and a burger before you go in there. Get your blood sugar up so that your body won't uh, shut down. Essentially, I know a lot of people that happened to. I'm not alone. So you know, it's one of those things. Taking a look at some military news, and this is an interesting thing from a place that I was stationed for a little while. That being Afghanistan. The Department of Defense Inspector General, Jake, says that Afghan attack pilots are helping turn the tide for troops on the ground. They have the A-29 Super Tucano aircraft, and they say that these things are actually doing some work and doing some damage and supporting the Afghan troops on the ground, as well as the Americans who are, quote, training, advising, and assisting them, uh, which is, I hear it's gotten better over there, but back in the day, it was, you know, the Americans that went out with the Afghans knew that if something happened, they were the ones who were probably going to have to deal with it because the Afghans were just as likely to drop their weapons and run the other direction as they were to actually engage the enemy. Uh, and if they did engage, I can't tell you how many stories I know of and how many people tell you about them basically blindly pointing an AK over cover and not even looking where they were shooting and just going for it. So the fact that seems from this report from the defense department inspector general report it seems that they're actually acting a little bit more like an actual military and they have air support now which is is huge and it's almost surprising to me because when i was there i I remember going out on a few missions with uh, some air force air crew guys that were training the afghans to be air crewmen the croatian pilots were teaching them to fly the mi-17 helicopters in fact if you go to the uh, mazari sharif afghanistan wikipedia page a picture that i took from an mi-17 of an mi-17 over the city is like the main picture for uh, mazari sharif on the wikipedia page i didn't put it there somebody else did um the Afghans were not the best pilots. <laughs> the Croatian pilots were constantly complaining about them not listening and not re- retaining information. And a fighter jet is harder to fly than a helicopter. From what I've been told from people who've flown both, they're saying like, hey, man, you're moving at higher speeds. You've got other things to think of. I mean, it, it's 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 different and they're both very difficult. But a fighter jet is just a step beyond because everything's happening a lot faster. Um, to hear that the Afghans are actually doing this, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, because what you said before, the problem with the Afghans is they don't have a big national identity. Yeah. They're more tribal in nature. But yeah. something like this, you know, like you said, it, it's a step in the right direction and it's a glimmer of hope. You know, people think when they talk about places like Afghanistan and they, they uh, a lot of people assume the big connecting thing is uh, religion. It can be, but you also have different uh, sects within different religions. Like within Islam, you have Sunnism, you have uh, Shia, uh, you have uh, Salafists. Salafists. There are different uh, breakdowns in that. Really, the the smaller the group you look at is where you're going to see the the least conflict, whether it's tribal, whether it's the village, whether it's uh, ethnic, because up where I was, there were a lot of people of uh, the same background as those in Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, the Uzbeks and the Turkmen. Uh, up there, whereas down by Kabul, it's all Pashtun. And as we have talked about, Afghanistan has more of a national identity now than it did years ago. Um, probably their biggest point of, of having a national identity is when they were kind of joined together to fight against the Russians when the Russians were in there. But otherwise, 
they worry more about their family and their village and their and the larger tribe in general that they belong to than the nation. Because again, you have different uh, ethnic backgrounds that have never agreed on anything going back thousands of years. You have infighting there. You have one village wanting to get rid of the next village over. It's uh, it's it can be a pretty rough time. But seeing effectiveness when it comes to war fighting, that's a good step in the right direction. Now, there's also a report out saying, hey. The Afghans need to maintain their own aircraft because one thing that if they're flying good combat missions, that's great. But if we're not there and NATO's not there to help maintain the aircraft, those combat missions are going to come to an end because you're, you're not going to be able to fly them. And that's uh, that's another issue that they have with those MI-17 helicopters with like, hey, you got to maintain this and take care of it. And you got to have your mechanics working on it and, and doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, it takes a lot of I mean, think about it when you were in a tank. How much time when you were a tanker was spent going around putting rounds on target compared to how much time was spent on preventative maintenance? I would say about four hours of maintenance for every hour of operation. There you go. That's 400% (laughs) when it comes to time. Because tanks do two things. They kill and they break. And they don't care who they kill. They don't care when they break. No. And that's dating back to World War I. And we're right now in the centennial of the, uh, the end of World War I. This year, November 11th. Uh, Veterans Day will be the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day, which is what Veterans Day grew out of, uh, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. That's when tanks first came onto the battlefield, and they were called death death traps because they would just break down, and they would sink into the mud, and there was gas and fumes and all sorts of stuff coming in. The technology back then wasn't as good as it is now, and even with that technology now, if you're not doing the proper maintenance, that tank is gonna it's gonna stop. It's gonna mm-hmm. break down. Track's gonna come off. Something's gonna happen. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. So maintenance is so key to maintaining. I mean, we all know that. Everybody in the military. If you ever were on a uh, an air force base, you know how many. Think about how many more people are working maintenance on aircraft than actually flying them. For every one person flying the uh, the the F-16 out there, for example, or the F-22, let's modernize it a little bit. For every one pilot, you've got how many support crew on the ground? Like 10? I mean, it's at least. So it's it's very key, and that's something, again, in a place like Afghanistan, uh, it, it's, it's difficult to get that sort of support network for the equipment because you have a low education rate, you have a very low literacy rate. There's a lot of lot of issues. So seeing that they've got the combat uh, runs going with the planes, that's great. But now they need the uh, the maintenance issues to be able to continue that on their own. Uh, so yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens there. Just talked about how it's uh, hundred years since the signing of the armistice that ended world war one uh and of course if you're a history buff you know that's the armistice that basically led to world war ii because of some of the things in it looking back well about 60 percent as long 62 years ago an airman second class named helen grace james was booted out of the air force because she was a lesbian oh this is a long time ago air force Airman second class, that's not even a rate that they have anymore. There's basic airman, airman first class, senior airman. There is no airman second class. That gives you an idea of how long ago this was. I mean, we're talking back in 1954, 55, when she was uh, sent out there. So apparently on a Friday night in 1955, this is according to the Air Force Times, she was followed off base while she was with another female by base police as they went to dinner, apparently on a date. Within days, she was arrested, and after a lengthy interrogation, 
described as humiliating. She received an undesirable discharge. That's My from God. the Washington Post has a story on this, and this happened in uh, in March of 1955. Uh, this is this story from uh, Kyle Swenson in uh, the Washington Post is it, it's really fantastic. So you have Helen James is now 90 years old because this happened 62 years ago, man. She was so she was what 28. She's 90 now. Airman second class Helen Grace James. She's uh, bringing a lawsuit against the Air Force for kicking her out 62 years ago. This uh, this lady, 90 years old, does not does not seem like the person that you want to mess with. She's like, you know what? Yeah, this was a long time ago, but I don't care. It still wasn't right. Here's the question. If that was the, the rule back then, does that lawsuit have any legs to stand on? Well, it's not just the rule that's the problem. The problem is the fact that she was followed, she was interrogated. I mean, these things, oh, that's, ex- it, that's excessive. Well, it's ex- no, now, but no, 62 what? years ago, that was acceptable. That, that's what I mean. Like, you, you cannot, I, I, I don't think, you can judge the law now, ba- judge what happened 60 years ago based on the law now. A lot of things have changed, man. We're talking about the 50s. This is before civil the civil rights movement began in earnest. 1955, man. This is this is a long time ago. So if those were the rules that were in place then, which have since been changed, is it retroactive? Can she now sue them for that? Now, it looks like what she's really suing for is to get her uh, discharge upgraded to uh, honorable. And if that's all she wants... It would certainly seem that it would be in the government's best interest to yeah. uh, nip this in the bud and just like, hey, you know what, honorable, what she did, this was the rule back then. They didn't do anything wrong following someone around for that, for breaking the rules. I mean, it, it was allowed. That was acceptable back then. It's excessive now, sure, but this was uh, this was a very different period in history. It was wrong, but it was the law, and it was viewed as right back then. So I don't know if, uh, you know, if, if there's any money involved in this lawsuit, it doesn't appear at least at face value as I look through it, but she wants that discharge upgraded to honorable a 90 year old who served honorably and just, you know, broke this rule. That's an arcane outdated rule now. Yeah. Give her, I'd say upgrade it to an honorable. I mean, we've, we've seen stories about discharges for, uh, what I would certainly say are more serious things than that being upgraded to, uh, at least general, if not, uh, you know, uh, honorable but this is uh it, it's a very very interesting thing for uh this woman who you know what maybe we can talk to her that would be interesting to talk to her about that and about how you know she loved being in the military and she was having a great time and then it all came crumbling down because you know probably somebody said something like yeah i heard she's one of those one of those lesbians Ooh. yeah I mean, what, what's the problem Spooky with scary. that? Yeah, like why everybody was terrified of that back then. Apparently Careful, they'll, they'll spread the gay on you. Yeah, hey, you know, that could be a horrible thing, right? I mean, it's it, when you think, when you look back on it now, it's so, it's silly. silly. It's ridiculous, but this has caused a horrible effect on this woman's life for 62 years that she's been out. And this is, uh, you know, she's trying to get it straight, straightened out. Now she's trying to get the, uh, the, the discharge from, undesirable discharge i mean this 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 is the difference in era she was a rank that no longer exists and was given a discharge that is no longer a category of discharge undesirable discharge that's saying from what i what i gather from the name of it because hey it doesn't exist now so i don't really know that you are an undesirable 
Like, oh, that's you're harsh. You are a homosexual or you are, you know, whatever else they would say. I mean, I, I know there was a time where they would uh, find people who had um, some African-American ancestry who passed as white and would kick them out for lying about that and calling them undesirable. It's yeah, saying you're not the right type for the military, which again, in this day and age, that obviously would never fly. It's reprehensible. But back then, 62 years ago, it was the rule. So it seems like with her lawsuit, what she's doing, again, this would this would be I don't think there would be anything as far as negative that could come out of giving her upgrading her to an honorable discharge unless there's just some you know, paper pusher out there at DOD, some lawyers like, nope, this was the rule back then. You got out under this rule 62 years ago. What's it going to change? I mean, could it lead to more people coming out and saying the same thing? Yeah, it could. And I don't necessarily know that that's a bad thing, you know? It's really not. Because again, they're not asking to be reinstated in the army. They're not asking, well, as I understand, she's not asking for monetary compensation. She just wants her, he just wants her discharge changed. So it I don't see that's like, not a bad thing. No, we'll have to we'll have to see if we can find out more about that because I don't see anything about uh, compensatory you know, money for it, and I don't know if she would ever be eligible for that because again, it was well within the Air Force's uh, and the military's directives back then. Like you were not allowed to serve as a homosexual, and you know, in that time, it was uh, it was it was just accepted essentially. Yeah. I mean, as horrible as it sounds. It was accepted back then. It's a different era. Things have changed for the better, I would say. She's 90 years old now. But when you think about, you know, getting that undesirable discharge, she couldn't use the GI Bill. She couldn't get insurance through USAA. This is according to that Washington Post story. You know, it's uh, she successfully applied in the 60s to get her undesirable discharge changed to a general under honorable conditions. But without the honorable discharge distinction, she can't receive any benefits. So that's, you know, what she wants. And it seems, I mean, at 90 years old, is she going to go back to school in the GI Bill? Probably not. It seems more to me, just looking at the it at face value, that it's based on principle. And maybe to help some of those that went through the same things after her. And she had great success. She went to Stanford University. She was a professor at the University of California, Fresno. Uh, she is, you know, had a very successful post-military career, but it was a struggle to get to that. So, you know, she taught in the physical therapy program. I believe she's a, uh, maybe a doctor or something like that. I, you know, I, my brain is not working. It's, this is like a Monday, even though it's a Tuesday because we yeah. had that day off. But you know what? The military, uh, I say, Give her the honorable discharge because it doesn't sound like she did anything then uh, other than follow her heart and didn't break any of the current laws. Again, doesn't look like she's asking for money as far as I know. If she is, she might have an issue trying to get any of that back, like back pay or stuff. But when it comes to writing uh, that wrong and maybe, again, maybe setting a precedent for many other people who went through the same thing. She's not the only one, man. Yeah. And it went on for quite a long time. The don't ask, don't tell policy was kind of when that shifted. And that was in the 90s. That was like 93, 94, somewhere around that, 92. So there are a lot of people who are affected by these things. We're going to be talking about a lot more here on the show as we move on. Ralph Parrott is going to join us live in studio, along with our reporter, Matt Saintsing, who I just saw traipse in. He and Ralph are going to tell us about the current state of the Mare Island Naval Cemetery. Now, Jake, I mentioned it earlier. Mare Island is the first was the first naval installation on the West Coast. It's up in the Bay Area, basically. And 
it was shut down under a, a brack thing quite a while back. State took control of it, did some stuff, up kept some of the property, didn't really do any upkeep on this cemetery. It's a historic cemetery. We have several Medal of Honor recipients laid to rest in this cemetery, and it was a disgrace. It had fallen apart. Well, Ralph and a bunch of other people, they brought some notice to it. Matt did a great story that got some national play on it and everything, and we're going to talk to them about what's going on with the Mare Island Cemetery now. Want to remind you, check us out on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all those big four of the big places where you're going to want to go for the big news and information and benefit guidance for the veteran community from our team of veterans and the veteran adjacent this is the morning briefing tuesday january 16th 2018 edition i'm your host eric dame jqs is our producer ralph parrott and matt saintsing talk to mayor island naval cemetery coming up right after this helping military veterans stay connected we make it easy we're cbs radio's connectingvets.com connecting vets every day online and all over social media facebook youtube instagram and twitter at connecting vets welcome back to the morning briefing it's tuesday january 16th 2018 i'm your host eric dame jake hughes is your producer phil bird dog briggs is not in studio yet but he will be at some point If you want to find out the latest and greatest affecting the military and veteran communities, you want to visit ConnectingVets.com, and you want to do it now and throughout the day. But if the boss is keeping an eye on your internet browser, why don't you go ahead and follow us on social media? We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you follow us on those sites, you'll be kept up to date on the latest coming out from the Connecting Vets team, which includes one of our next two guests. Right now, we are welcoming two special guests to the studio. One is a little bit more special than the other because we see we see Matt Saintsing every day, Connecting Vets reporter Matt Saintsing. Matt, good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. And retired United States Navy Captain Ralph Parrott. Ralph, good morning. How are good you today? Morning. Now, Ralph is here to talk to us about the Mare Island Naval Cemetery, which I misspoke earlier and said that the state of California took over. It was actually the city of Vallejo in California, but we're going to get more into that after we get a little bit into Ralph. So, Ralph, as I mentioned, retired Navy captain. Tell us a little bit about your service. When did you join and what did you do while you were in? <laughs> All right. Well, I I went came into the Navy from a Navy scholarship and at Tulane University, where I majored in chemistry and mathematics. And, uh, it came into the Navy as a supply corps officer in 1963, hmm. uh, spent almost 28 years in, uh, mostly around Naval aviation. I served on two carriers. I served during Vietnam. I served on intrepid and my last tour of sea duty, 1979 to 81, I was supply officer of the aircraft carrier America. Oh, wow. I uh, was in Washington for a couple of tours here. And my last tour of duty, I was commanding officer of the then Navy Supply Center in Jacksonville, Florida. Ah, a place where I was stationed as well. If you're an Atlantic Fleet sailor, chances are you made it to Norfolk and Jacksonville at least once. Right. Now, 20-plus years that you serve in the uh, the United States Navy, 28 years, I think you said, right? 28 years that you serve, and, of course, that would mean you got out sometime around 91, I'm guessing? 1990. I served 27 and a half years. 1990. So... 1990 comes around. You are a captain in the United States Navy. That's a big deal. You're a commanding officer. It's time to get out. It's still a big deal. He's being very uh, modest right here. Listen, I know what a Navy captain is all about. 
it comes time to get out, and I think most people assume that those who rise to the command level, commanding officers, your commanders, captains, admirals, they're going to be set. They're going to have a plan for when they get out, when they transition to civilian life. What was that transition period like for you? Well, actually, it was not all that bad. Uh, I've made a joke on a few occasions that I wouldn't take a million dollars for my 27 and a half year Navy career and wouldn't give you a nickel for five minutes more. But <laughs> other than that, uh, when I left the Navy, the one thing we were probably going to move back here to the Washington area because I own, we owned a home here. Uh, but the one thing I wanted to do was make a clean break from the Navy. I had no interest at all in coming back here and working for a contractor or that right. kind of thing. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I just didn't want to do it. And so, uh, my wife, bless her heart, had a, a good suggestion. And so I took it and took a couple years and went and did a doctoral program and taught at the university of Tennessee in their business school. Uh, I never completed my PhD because once I was working on my dissertation, I discovered how much more money I could make uh, <laughs> doing consulting work as opposed to being an academic. And the truth is that the market for 50-plus-year-old tenure-track academics is not all that great anyway. No. Uh, so we moved back here, and I started my own company, uh, consulting company, doing logistics, uh, transportation, distribution, procurement, that kind of stuff. Uh, we did not do any defense work. Okay. It was mostly almost all commercial work. We did a little bit of work for the uh, city of Washington D.C., and we did a fair amount of work for the New York City New York Metropolitan Transit Authority. But it was mostly commercial stuff, and I did that for about ten years, and uh, then retired. And uh, from really retired, uh, my goal was to do it at age sixty, and I missed it by a year, so we I retired fully at age uh, sixty one. That's not too bad, missing not, it by a year. As an old suppo, you know that there's going to be some wiggle room when you have things like not that. Not so bad. And 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 so the art my transition was was not all that painful and uh and it was fairly uh, lucrative, so as which which enabled me to retire. And my wife and I spend a lot of time traveling these days and we are space A warriors, if there you, you will. Go. And so we, we do space A all the time. That's one of those benefits of retirement that I I did 13 years in the world's finest Navy, didn't get to retirement. And if I had, that's one of the benefits that I think would be the best one, being able to (laughs) hop on and travel anywhere in the world, essentially, as long as there's room and as long as you're, uh, don't mind, maybe not the most comfortable accommodations occasionally. uh, Actually, you can have an argument about that because the, uh, uh, our favorite fly aircraft is the C-17. Oh, God. And, really? <laughs> really? That's not and, my favorite. Yeah. And, and uh, really, because I, you, I've i flown on C-141s, and that was like flying inside a noisy refrigerator. Yeah, like a tuna can that and, someone uh, put wings but on. But the C-17, they got the pressurization right, they got yeah. the heat right, and they only fly for about maximum of 10 hours. And oh that's, yeah, that's and when they come bad. into Afghanistan, they do combat landings, whether well, they need yeah, to or but you not. You don't go is, space A into Afghanistan. No, it's not easy to get a chicken over there. We're speaking to Ralph Parrott. Ralph is a retired Navy captain, and now retired from his civilian career, and as he said, a space A warrior. Which I'm going to guess may have something to do with how you came into contact with the Mare Island Naval Cemetery, which we've been talking about at Connecting Vets for quite a while. And Matt reported on this because of Ralph's great work to get some 
some work done at Mare Island. Essentially, Mare Island was the first naval installation on the West Coast, the first major naval installation. And when it became uh, shut down, and when, when was Mare Island shut down, Ralph? Uh, 1996. In, a, in one of the BRAC closure movements. Yes. It was just yep. a place that they decided they didn't need anymore. There was a naval cemetery on base. This had been there for quite a long period of time. I mean, as we said, the first naval installation on the West Coast that naval cemetery included a couple Medal of Honor recipients and and other veterans who were laid to rest in that cemetery. And when the city of Vallejo took over the Mare Island facilities, there were some parts of it, as I understand, that they did some upkeep on and that they used for various things. The cemetery was not one of them. So, Ralph, as the man who's been uh, really the spearhead, the point man on this in a lot of ways, how did you first come into contact with the Mare Island Cemetery? Well, actually, we were flying. We were on our way to Malaysia. We were flying Space A out of Travis uh, to Singapore, and we got hung up in Travis for a few days. And being stranded in the Bay Area is not all that bad anyway. <laughs> and uh, so we took one one day. We were over looking at the old shipyard. And there's beautiful old buildings over there, some old homes and quarters and stuff. It's quite nice. And we were walking around, and we stumbled on to the to the cemetery. And it's been there since the before the Civil War, and uh, it was in not all that great a shape. I mean, yeah. it was the people that are there that are volunteers working on it do an amazing job but it's amazing job without very many resources, not a lot of help. Mm. And so we looked at it and I said, you know, this is a shame. It's a very historic site. It's on the national historic register and all that stuff. And, uh, so I made myself a promise that I was going to try to do the best I could to figure out number one, why it got there, how it got there. And was there something we could do? And so when we came back from the trip, I started making inquiries. And as it turned out, the cemetery was just not even thought of when the, when the shipyard was closed. Right. You had a situation where the Navy wanted to get rid of it in the worst possible way, which is understandable. The Navy's not near as big as it used to be. Uh, the city of Vallejo really wanted that property because they saw dollar signs in, yeah. in, in developing and so forth, which is all to the good as far as I'm concerned. But somewhere in the process, the cemetery got lost in the shuffle. And before we, you know, denigrate the, uh, the city of Vallejo, we have to say, I have to say, that in looking at that cemetery that had been kind of sitting there without a lot of work for 20 years right. since the thing had been closed, looking at that cemetery, the Navy didn't do all that great of shakes at taking care of it for the 150 mm -hmm. years they had it either. So let's not kid ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I started making inquiries within the Navy Department to say, okay, how did we get here? What the heck is going on? And what can we do about it? Well, nobody, the Navy had washed their hands of the whole thing, and it was very hard to get a phone call returned, let me in, or an email. Mm. Uh, but I finally uh, came on to a Navy, one of the Navy executives. He's a deputy undersecretary over there, and uh, who's kind of historic properties is kind of part of his portfolio and so we started kind of noodling on what we could do right. short term and there is a program in the department of defense called the innovative readiness training program irt and this gentleman actually with the help of some people over in the va memorial affairs uh 
got the ball rolling to put together a project. And this innovative readiness training program really says, let's take military units. They do civic good and it's under a rubric of their training for their stuff. And so this is a perfect thing for the CBs to do. Yeah. And as this gentleman, not, I had nothing to do with that. He's the one who discovered this and it took the ball. And currently there is a major grant proposal into the DOD, uh, for fiscal year two, 2019 that would bring in CBs and some of their contractors to really do some basic work, drainage, uh, grading and so forth. The VA has also offered up. There is a program where they, that, uh, headstones can be duplicated and replaced, which oh, wow. is one of the major problems there. So that pro that project is making its way through the bureaucracy. And at some point in time, it will be either approved or disapproved for 2019. My guess is it'll probably be approved, which is all to the good. We're speaking with Ralph Parrott. Ralph has been working to basically fix the, the problems that they're had at the Mare Island Naval Cemetery. Uh, this was a historic naval cemetery. Dates back to pre-Civil War. You have Medal of Honor recipients laid to rest there, along with other veterans uh, and military members. And, of course, Matt, you reported on the story for Connecting Vets. Our own reporter, Matt Sainzing, is also live in studio and recently had an update to the story. I know this story got a lot of play when it first went out. You were interviewed by radio stations out in San Francisco asking you about the story um you know what has what what have you been reporting on lately with the updated story so the biggest thing going forward and we all found this information through ralph is he actually had a meeting with the mayor of vallejo on january 9th uh bob sampayan um and we should say the, the grant to submit to the irt to have these cb battalions come and do construction was a grant that was done through the city of vallejo right. through uh mayor sampayan's leadership uh and basically there's a new initiative where the city of vallejo will offer up the cemetery to have to the, to the va to have control but to kind of sweeten the pot the city of vallejo will also add in uh, more land so graves can be expanded so current mm. veterans living in the bay area could have the historic 160 year old Mare Island Naval, C Naval Cemetery as their final resting place. Which would be very cool. I mean, we think about all these uh, veteran cemeteries that are around, and, and some of them are just on whatever land a county, state, city, you know, just wanted to put yeah. them on. This is a place that has actual ties to the military. That's kind of a big well, deal. Well, in this case, coolness is in the eye of the beholder. Ah. The VA is not all that keen on the idea. Right. Huh. And and that's exactly, I had a meeting with the VA at, early on in the project, and and they really are not all that interested in taking over the cemetery. Um, I suggested to the mayor that uh, the sweetener might of additional grave sites might give us something to talk about. Uh, the mayor has agreed, and, and they're putting together a proposal to go to the VA to request that they formally take it over and to cede the land for the additional the the VA the feedback informal feedback that the VA says oh we don't have jurisdiction and all that stuff uh, the truth is they don't want to do it and it's going to take a major effort to convince them uh, my view is that until they are forced to say no they will always say no mm. and so first off there has to be something official from the city of Vallejo making the proposal the VA then has an opportunity to say yes and the the thing that I'm trying to do now is to get the veterans community behind this. I have a meeting later on this week for, with one of the executives from the VFW okay. here in town. Plan to hold meetings with all the other senior people 
But if, if the VA, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen because the veterans community gets up in arms about it and brings pressure to bear. Now the VA may still say no, and that's not the end of the story because there is always the political side uh, where you go to the you know and try to get a bill through the Congress to 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 force the VA to do it. That's tough to do, but it's not impossible. I'm also hoping that just like this uh, innovative readiness training project that bubbled up from an executive over in the, in the Navy department right. who was interested in the project, uh, that there may be some other ways to do this that I'm just not aware of. Yeah. There may be other grants out there that might be helpful. Mm-hmm. And the, the, hopefully if we can bring enough pressure on the VA, they'll start working to say, okay, how do we fix the problem? Right. Rather than I don't want to do anything, right? And if doing something other than taking it over gets the problem fixed, I, that's I'm more power to it. I'm I'm perfectly. I, I don't have any any skin in the game in terms of this particular solution, but right. it is a solution. It's a solution, right? And, hey, a and that's the only one on the table none. right now, yeah. as a matter of fact. And it's important to note here the 1996, as we said. Uh, through the BRAC, the, the shipyards closed down as well as a cemetery. The city of Vallejo took that property over, but the city of Vallejo actually went bankrupt, I believe, in the early 2000s. Right. Uh, so they've actually been unable to provide uh, right. some of the basic maintenance that is needed. But yeah. th- there has been some uh, uh, so, some movement out in Vallejo, and we should talk about the Friends of the Mare Island uh, right. Historical Society who've had uh, several National Day of Services where volunteers right. from the area throughout right. the state, veterans come together, and they effectively clean up. They painted some fences. They uh, took away some of the overgrown acacia trees. I actually gave that to the Oakland Zoo to feed the elephants. It's, oh, it's wow. a delicacy yeah. for them. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, but they're, they're not allowed to actually touch the he- the gravestones or the markers. Right. And this is actually a point of contention because if you look at the condition of these grave sites, they are crumbled. They are cracked. And like you said, there's three Medal of Honor recipients there. The daughter of France, oh, the fifth daughter of Francis Scott Key, the person who wrote the Star Bankle Banner is buried there. There's a memorial yeah. to the USS Boston there. It is a historic uh, cemetery. And one of the interesting things, too, that we can point out that uh, especially early on, before any work had really been done to kind of spruce the place up, I know I had heard there were some uh, Navy chief selects that were trying to get out there and help out a little bit right. as well. There were Russian sailors who were lost uh, in the California area buried there. And the Russians came over and spruced up their graves, whereas we couldn't take care of our own. So they were willing to come from Russia. It will probably come from the embassy or wherever the they were over here. Yeah. yeah, so to come out from there and uh, and do their due that, diligence for their veterans. But we, uh, up until very recently, thanks to Ralph and, as you said, some others that have been doing great things out there, uh, we weren't holding up our end of the bargain for our people. Actually, the Russian story is kind of interesting. The, the sailors, there's six of them, I believe, uh, were from a ship that was actually invited to visit San Francisco by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. Wow. No, yeah, it was. I guess during the well, yeah, it was during the Civil War, uh, and uh, when they were in port there, there was a major fire. It wasn't the fire, but a major fire right. in San Francisco, and these sailors were killed fighting the fire, fighting the fire, and were buried there. Yeah. And their graves fell into disrepair, and the uh, the Russian government came and replaced it. And there was some controversy because it wasn't historical. And, you know, the, there's that kind you of... You replace the headstones at right. night and replace it. They have it with Orthodox <laughs> yeah. crosses and, and they're in Cyrillic. Yeah. The, 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 the Russian so, language. So that's a, that's a... But there hasn't been a burial in the shipyard, in the cemetery, since 1926. Hmm. 
And the the Boston story is a great one. Those sailors are, I think, over 15. I'm not sure of the number. I think it's 15. They were killed in the 1890s in an explosion aboard the USS Boston while it was in the shipyard. Mm. And, in fact, a big portion of the veterans that are buried there are, uh, are were killed in accidents. Right. Uh, now, as a result of my doing it, I, I, uh, getting involved with this, I came, was introduced to a woman, her name is Helen Payne, who lives in Great Britain. And she has an ancestor who is buried there. Wow. And this gentleman came to the U.S. as a te- very young teenager, talked his way into the U.S. Navy, <laughs> and was killed in the South Pacific uh, in, during a, a, a big storm. Wow. He was killed. I think he was in like 14, 15, 16 years old. Mm. He was killed, and his body was recovered, and he's buried there. And she found out about it doing genealogical research. And she and I carry on a conversation uh, uh, over Facebook all the time. Wow. That is, it's it's an amazing story and sounds like an amazing place. As we said, three Medal of Honor recipients. Now, some people might point out that this was when the Medal of Honor was given out uh, a little bit more freely than it is these days. Uh, well, this was, they, yeah, it's interesting. These were, during the Civil War days, but they were killed and awarded the Medal of Honor for life-saving in non-combat. Right. And, that, and of course, since then, the Medal of Honor has changed. Yeah, when you go back to the Civil War era, uh, it, it, is, it was given away much like a Navy Achievement Medal yeah. or an Army Commendation yeah. Medal yeah. might be these days. So uh, it, it's, not like, uh, you know, the, it's not like Sergeant York is buried yeah. there. But still, it doesn't matter. These are veterans for the yeah. most part and uh, the families of veterans that are buried there. And it's, I think it's important that we take care of those, yeah. those historical places and the memories yeah. of those people. Yeah, well, we hope so. We hope that we can get the veterans' uh, VSOs exercised and and vocal, and I think if we do, we've got a fair chance of of, of prevailing. Yeah. Now, Matt, as you've kept an eye on this, and you've uh, you know, Ralph is directly involved in it, so he's got his way that he's going to see everything. What's been your take and your perspective on any improvement that we've seen since your original story? What was that four or five months it was ago? In back in uh, July, August time. Yeah, so five months, First few stories. I think the biggest thing is that the city of Vallejo is now getting involved and they're taking some ownership. Uh, I think it's fair to say, and this is before Mayor Sampayan got into office, but it's fair to say that the city of Vallejo effectively they did what they could, but basically maybe gave up on the cemetery and as you said uh, we can if you look at these pictures and you can look at these pictures all on our, our stories on connectingvets.com uh the gravestones are falling apart they're crumbling this is no way to uh house the final resting places of of our, our country's veterans so i think the fact that the city is getting involved the fact that the va is now brought to the table in the conversation the fact that these CB battalions uh, will be able to go in and, and they would be able to actually replace the headstones and markers. Uh, the fact that all these these agencies are talking, these governments are talking to each other, uh, is the is going to be the solution forward. And this all goes back to, I think, back to 1985 and 1996 when the BRAC happened. And the BRAC, some could say, we know now, it might have been mismanaged where uh, the Navy walked away from the Mare Island shipyard don't say. and the cemetery <laughs> and says City of Vallejo, or I think they kicked it they kicked it back to the state first, and then the City of Vallejo got involved. If, if the timeline's correct, mm-hmm. uh, I think that when you have we need the locals 
state and actually the federal government working together, talking together for a solution to this. It shouldn't just be on the backs of a of, of the city of Vallejo. No. And the CBs, I'll tell you what, Port Wanimi, which is CB Central out there in Southern California, it's not that far away from yeah. that Bay Area where Vallejo is. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that those guys, knowing CBs, my grandfather was one and having worked with them, that's the kind of project that they would not only do, they would do it very well. But there's, it's getting to that point, right? There's actually some uh, reserve CB battalions in the Bay Area, which oh, right. would probably, uh, this would probably be part of their training. Now, we've just got a couple minutes left here, Ralph, and I want to ask you, What's your hope for 2018? It's a new year, Mare Island Cemetery. What do you hope we're able to accomplish with it by the end of this calendar year? I hope we'll be able to see the long-term perpetual care, maintenance, and restoration of the cemetery uh, insured. Now, if the VA took it over, that would be great. Uh, but if there was some other other approach that's okay too, but that we could say the, Hey, it's, it's, it's restoration, maintenance, and care is taken care of in perpetuity. That would be huge. Now, Ralph, if people are interested in getting involved in this, if we have a listener out in the Bay area who wants to see what they can do personally, what should they do? Who should they contact? Uh, what can they do to try and help out with your mission? Well, I'm kind of a one man band. Uh, the, the best way to, to contact me is through email or through my Facebook page. I'm more than happy to put out my email address here. Uh, it's Ralph, R-A-L-P-H, Parrot, P-A-R-R-O-T-T, all lowercase, no spaces, the number three at gmail.com. And you can reach out to Ralph directly. And, of course, if you have any Anything that you're working on that this sounds a little bit familiar, something that you're trying to restore out there, some military veteran-related thing, you can contact our own Matt Saintsing as well. He's Matt at ConnectingVets.com. And I want to thank Ralph Parrott and Matt Saintsing for joining us in studio to talk about this absolutely fascinating project. Gentlemen, thank you so much for talking about it. And Ralph, thank you so much for what thank you're you doing. Thank you so much for having me. For our old shipmates out there in Mare Island. Hope this year is the year that that place gets righted and in the right hands you've been listening to the morning briefing tuesday edition january 16th 2018 my thanks to producer jq's ralph and matt coming up tomorrow we are going to have the american legion joining us what are they going to talk to us about well you're going to have to tune in to find out and don't forget to check out connectingvets.com and follow us on social media we are at connecting vets on facebook twitter instagram and youtube have a great afternoon see you tomorrow morning his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.